true and living God. Amen. Please be seated. So our gospel reading today is from the first chapter of Mark. It's really just a few verses in. It's only verse 29. And Jesus is already going around and teaching and healing, casting out demons, um, creating a huge following for himself. The gospel of Mark is very different from the other gospels. Um, Mark is just the facts. He just keeps it very simple, very straightforward. What we learn about Jesus is less about the things that he says and more of the things that he does, when he shows who he is. It's unlike, uh, for example, the Gospel of Luke, where it begins with a nativity story, where we have poetry, where people break into spontaneous oration like the Magnificat and the Song of Simeon. Here it's just immediately things happening. And I'm actually really thrilled that this was the reading for today um, because it has a special place and a new special place in my heart um, that I, I feel compelled to share about. And some of you have heard me talk already a little bit, but um, many of us from St. John's had a life-changing experience this fall when we got to the Holy Land and we got to travel literally in the places where Jesus lived and taught and where things that were recorded, for example, here took place. And one of my very favorite places that we got to visit was the actual Capernaum. Capernaum is a place you can go there. It is, it turns out, it, it happens to be a beautiful place. You know, the Sea of Galilee, it's really a large lake. It's, when you look across it, you can't see to the other side, but you can see how it curves around, and you get a sense of real, uh, just a, a wonderful unfolding space with hills that kind of circle it. And on the Sea of Galilee, you can imagine these people whose livelihood were fishermen were very close to the water, close to the fish. And if you go to Capernaum, there is the synagogue. The synagogue that we just heard about, where Jesus goes in on the Sabbath and he teaches, and then he does a healing in the synagogue. Um, the synagogue is right there. Now, interestingly, uh, the foundational synagogue, the foundation underneath, which is uh, a dark, colored lava stone. Um, that is the Jesus from uh, the, the synagogue from Jesus's day and age, from the first century. And a new synagogue was built on top of it in the fourth century. Still very old. Uh, the new synagogue is beautiful. You still have the doorways you can walk through, and the, there's carving in the stone that you can make out. But all underneath it, it that deeper layer. It is the synagogue that still exists. You can, you can imagine Jesus walking in it. And then, only maybe 200 feet away, um, between the synagogue and, Jesus, uh, and Simon's home, there is a mostly excavated neighborhood. You see walls and rooms, and you can imagine walkways and maybe streets. Um, it, it's partial. It's you know, it's been 2,000 years, but it's a first century neighborhood that connects all the way from the door of where there would have been a door in the synagogue to Simon's home. And the reason we think we know where Simon's home was was because the early Christians recognized it as such, and it became a very special church. We know that it was a church, a place that was revered. Um, and so it doesn't look like much of a home anymore. It's just some walls. But you could imagine this was where his living room was. And this is 
where he was staying with Andrew and with his mother-in-law when Jesus came straight from the synagogue and healed her. A little interesting side note, isn't it interesting that Peter, who is essentially the first pope, had a wife? I think that's a different sermon for a different day. <laughs> but we know he had a mother-in-law. And Jesus comes and heals her. Again, he is a person of power, demonstration, of action. In the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that makes it so uh, special is it's like a little bit of a, a mystery story. Who is this person? People are constantly astounded and wondering, who is he, this person with power, who teaches with authority, not like the people that we've heard before. And strangely, the only people who get who he is are the demons that he casts out. We get these little hints through their voices until at the end, he is finally revealed for the reader. So part of what is going on in this important part of the Gospel of Mark is discipleship. It's revealing what it means to be a disciple. It's showing these early disciples who begin to follow, who cast off everything else they were doing, their livelihoods, their families. You may ask, what is actually a disciple? What does it mean? What does that word mean? One definition from Jesus' time is what a disciple is, is someone who's covered in the dust of their teacher covered in the dust of their rabbi, which tells you what it means. It's not just to follow, but to follow closely. To follow so closely that the dust that's kicked up by the person that you're following covers you, and you're blessed by that. Bishop Marianne, the bishop of our diocese here, has been talking about something that she terms courageous discipleship. And you, on first hearing that, may think, well, it just means brave discipleship. But she points out courageous <coughs> shares the root core, which is the Latin word with heart, the word for heart. So courageous means to be with all of ourselves emanating from our hearts. That's the kind of discipleship that we're called to have, to follow with our hearts and with all of our being, all of ourselves. The point not being to be dusty, but the point to follow well. And interestingly, and importantly, not just to follow for the sake of following, but for the sake of learning to be like the one we follow. It makes me think of the wisdom in the 12-step movement, which has the phrase, fake it, fake it till you make it. We may not be on that level yet. We may not be able to move and live and serve and love in the way that our rabbi does but we can follow him and try to make our body do that until our heart follows and gets there too. Now, very importantly, when Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, uh, there's a specific word. Uh, in our translation, it says she was lifted up or raised up. And you can imagine she is probably, she's sick with fever and she's probably reclining takes her hand and lifts her up and raises her up. But Mark is being sneaky, and he's specifically using the very same phrase that will later be used to describe resurrection. And people are raised from death. It's not just a show of magic, but it's a sign. 
And then interestingly, um, you know what happens next. Uh, this always kind of sticks with me for years and has stuck with me and actually kind of bothered me. As soon as she is raised, as soon as she's basically saved from death, what does she do? She serves them. <laughs> Wouldn't you be a little bit embarrassed <laughs> if you um, were served by somebody who was just basically brought back from death, almost dying? I had a, an insight of this here when I was reading a commentary on, on this, that actually, that too shows us something important. Jesus came to teach us to serve. And those disciples, though they tried to be good followers and at moments, they, they have many good moments, they often don't totally get it. And she shows them what they should be doing, what we all should be doing. It's not her being lower than anyone that she's serving, but she's actually completing that process of being raised up when she shows how to live by serving. Because now she really is alive. And, even better, awake. I heard a, a very timely talk this week. It was a podcast. The Surgeon General Vivek Murphy has a podcast that he uses to bring on really interesting and important thought leaders to talk about health, health in our country, health um, all aspects of it. And uh, the most recent episode, he interviews a woman named Lisa Miller. She is a professor at Columbia University. She's a psychologist and a scientist. And the work of her life is studying how faith and the body are related. And how our health and our spiritual lives interact with each other. Something that people have known for generations and generations, but now they're actually finally getting to the point of really studying it, being able to prove some things that many of us have just sensed and, and seen anecdotally. One of the insights that she shares is that there are things about all of us that are innate, and then things that are, of course, learned. So intelligence, she says, studies show that 60% is innate, but 40% is what you've been exposed to, um, schooling, mentors, teachers, things like that. Um, if you are an introvert or an extrovert, you know, she says that's 50% innate, which is a lot of innate. Most of us are mostly born to be extroverts or introverts, but then your life can, can also impact what you end up really being as an adult. So here's where it comes to our spiritual life. This is the important part. She says, we human beings, all of us, across the world, across cultures, across religions, of course, we are innate spiritual beings. We have it hardwired in us to have a relationship with the transcendent, which many of us call God. Do you want to guess what percentage? 30%. Now you can look at this in a glass half full sort of situation or half empty sort of situation. If it's a 30%, that means all of us have a significant part of us that knows it's who we are. You know, Paul Tillich used to talk about the spiritual life, and he said that uh, engaging with the question of God is our ultimate concern. Something that deep inside we know is utterly important to who we are. But we have to nurture it. If we are parents, or if we have young people in our lives, many of you may be godparents, it's important that we nurture in the lives of younger people. And Lisa Miller points out that a lot of the crises that are seen on college campuses with mental health 
people are turning to faith to try to help with that because she has proven faith. She and others have proven that faith helps with depression, anxiety, and so many other things. But people don't know where to start because they have never been taught anything about a life of faith up to this point. It's been more than a generation, I think, that there's been the theory that maybe people should just be left to find it on their own and make up their minds later. She says, no, we owe it to people to give them the resources, the guidance, the teaching, the training. The good news is that we are here. There are places where people gather, where we support one another. We at St. John's, this is our annual meeting day, and I've been spending time preparing for the presentation we're going to give in a little bit. It has warmed my heart to look at all of the imagery of this last 12 months, and you'll see a lot of it. In fact, by the way, I'm also going to show you pictures of the Holy Land, including Capernaum in Peter's house in the synagogue. It has warmed my heart to see all the activity that we've been a part of. And you can look at facts and figures, and we're going to give you some of those too. We've been making more efficiency. That's exciting. <laughs> We're doing systems better. But none of that is as important as us learning to be good disciples as a community. That is the picture that I want us to be painting. We are here for that. We are hardwired and meant to be and called to be a part of this work of being good disciples and building discipleship of seeking ways where we can awaken and help others to awaken so that we really can raise people up. Amen.